The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about markets and the week ahead in stocks. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Liz Ann was just named for the third consecutive year to our annual list of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Congratulations, Lizanne. Oh, thank, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate it. Well, we were glad to have you on the list again. And I want to thank you for joining Ben and me and our listeners on what has really been quite a dreary day for stocks. So mm-hmm. I hope you'll have some good news for us, but <laughs> we're, we're eager to hear whatever you have to say. <laughs> so I'd like to start with the big picture. The U.S. stock market has been selling off basically since late last year in anticipation of rising interest rates. Now, of course, there are other reasons for concern. Inflation is roaring. Energy prices are soaring. And we have a very nasty war in Europe. So let's get your big picture view, Lizanne. What's your market forecast from here? Well, um, one thing we actually don't do is try to be precise around uh, forecasts. I think forecasts, especially the the mechanics around year-end price targets, which I think is co- common fodder for strategists, but really I personally think and our firm thinks of no value, especially to individual investors. So our goal isn't to try to forecast, but really provide guidance. That doesn't mean we don't have perspective on what the market is likely to do, but we also believe that uh, looking too far ahead and trying to time with precision, be it corrections or where the market's going to end at the end of the year, I think is a bit of a fool's errand. So we've had the view since the latter part of last year, especially at the point when the Fed moved to start tapering the balance sheet, which was in November. That was when the the flavor of the market really changed and underlying leadership change. You saw a lot more churn and weakness under the surface. And our perspective was that was likely to continue uh, at least to the point where the Fed actually started uh, tightening policy, which we do continue to think that that will start um, next week. Uh, They're still at the zero bound. They're still adding to the balance sheet just at a lesser uh, pace. But what we started to see, especially toward the end of last year, was a lot of significant drawdowns under the surface. It was masked by cap-weighted indexes being fairly resilient, um, but a lot of weakness under the surface. And our view was that as we moved into 2022, we would likely see a bit of catch down by the broad indexes at the index level as some of the weakness kind of crept up the the cap spectrum. And then of course you throw the uh, the incredible wrinkle of, uh, of geopolitics and uncertainty with regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine at a time when growth was already slowing and inflation was already hot. I think this stealth bear market that uh, I've been using as a term to describe what we're in is probably not ending anytime soon. So I gather this is not a buying opportunity. 
Um, I think that this meaning right now at this moment in time, I don't think investing should ever be about a moment in time. It should always be a process over time. So the first, the first component of a decision about whether this weakness provides an opportunity is, do you have a long-term strategic asset allocation plan? And where is your equity exposure relative to that plan? If you are above it, I would actually take advantage of some of the short-term periods of strength we've seen, some of these intraday rallies to actually trim back to normal allocations. To the extent you're underexposed on a you know dollar cost average basis, yes, you can use some of this weakness, but I, I certainly wouldn't look at any of this as moment in time type decisions. Investing should not be about moments in time. That's just gambling. Investing should be a disciplined process over time. So I don't think anyone should ever look at the market, especially on a given day or a given week and say, okay, is it time to get in? Neither get in nor get out are investing strategies. So it really depends on your risk tolerance, your strategic asset allocation, your um, long-term goals, whether you're income-oriented, what your emotional risk tolerance is, that's really what should come into play versus whether this particular week is going to be at or near the bottom. I think that's very well said. So looking at the war in Ukraine and the West's efforts to isolate Russia economically and financially, how does that factor into your forecast? What do you see as the best case outcome? What's the worst case outcome, strictly from an investment perspective? Well, I think clearly best case outcome would be some sort of end to this, a ceasefire and a, a you know, a quick and, and somewhat forceful, not just retreat on the part of Russia, but retreat in commodity prices, specifically across the energy and food complexes um, to, to, you know, hope for that. I think we, we all do to assume that's likely uh, probably um, fairly slim, but that clearly would be best case scenario. Um, worst case scenario, obviously, is that this turns into an actual protracted war, that this is just the beginning of a larger um, land or country grab on the part of Putin, that it brings forces in at a military level beyond what has been done by the West so far via sanctions, and then the ripple effects become even more dramatic, again, an environment where we were already starting, I think rightly so, to pull out the recession playbooks, just given already the inflation hit to growth, not to mention the uh, the flattening in the yield curve, the fact that Atlanta Fed GDP now, which is a pretty well-watched forecaster of GDP, it's, it's actually it's not a forecast in the sense that it's a bunch of folks sitting in a room at the Atlanta Fed saying, here's what I think, here's what I think. They actually are tabulating the data as it comes in, plugging it into the GDP model and then forecasting based on that. And of course, we're two months and a, and a week into the, the first quarter. So it's a lot of actual data embedded in their forecasts, which is now literally zilch, you know, at the zero line. So um, that is that is worst case scenario that uh, that we see and ex that we're entering into World War Three. The moves we've seen in the energy and food complex of commodities gets worse from here and it uh, leads to a global recession. There's a lot of there's a lot of room in between those two, but uh, right. that's best and worst. 
I never thought we'd be talking about World War III on this program, that's for sure. I know, especially when we thought COVID was finally moving into the rearview mirror. We have this now to right. deal with. Uh, right. We can't seem to get a break in the last couple of years. No, humanity needs a break for sure. Absolutely. So you, you've been telling clients to keep an eye on leading economic indicators, such as yeah. energy prices and the slope of the yield curve. So why is that? What are these things telling you now? And why are they important to look at? Well, I think leading indicators are always important when you're at a potential inflection point in the economy because they do, as the name suggests, they they are heads up indicators. They they move in advance of metrics like GDP or more coincident economic indicators. So, uh, because they are, as I call them, these heads up indicators, when you start to see some deterioration, it's it's worth paying close attention to. And one of the one of the the things I've said about markets and the relationship between economic data and the stock market, and I've been saying this for decades, is that better or worse tends to matter more than good or bad. You know, it's human nature for us to look at economic data, whether it's broad metrics like GDP or specific metrics like retail sales or consumer confidence or the unemployment rate or unemployment claims, the, the job numbers, you know, payroll growth. We're all familiar with those data points and it's human nature to look at them as they're released and think, are they good? Are they bad? Are they strong? Are they weak? But the reality is that better or worse tends to matter more for the stock market. The stock market keys off that rate of change, that, that second derivative when things just start to move down from peaks. Um, that's a bit of a yellow light, a warning sign that you're not going to see get picked up in the coincident indicators until down the road. And you certainly won't see them get picked up in the lagging indicators until well down the road. And the leading indicators in level terms are still in decent shape, but they have rolled over. And um, of the 10 leading indicators as part of the, the conference board uh, index that comes out, most of them are now kind of rolling over or in a worsening trend, even if the level of the data is still relatively um, healthy. So it's, again, it's rate of change. It's that inflection point that matters, especially in an environment like this. That makes sense. So under what circumstances, we, we are all expecting the Fed to raise rates at its March meeting. Under what circumstances do you think the Fed might be forced to reconsider? Of course, it's it's only a little more than a week away before we have the... Wow, uh, you're right. The, right, yeah, March 16th. So it's a two-day meeting, but they won't make the announcement until March 16th. You know, there's this still this notion out there that or narrative that some have that there's a Fed put, that there is weakness in the market, some level of weakness in the market or level of volatility that in and of itself would cause the the Fed to reconsider, as you as you put it. And um, I'm not sure that's the case as it relates specifically to the financial markets as uh, in terms of either price weakness or volatility. I think what the only thing that would cause the Fed maybe to rethink is if we started to face financial system instability. Mm. And, and the Fed has been really clear and, and Jerome Powell himself has been really clear in sending the message that financial market volatility and financial system instability are not one and the same. At times, the former can cause the latter, but 
they're not the same. And I think the, to me, in my mind, the only thing that would, would cause the Fed to sort of veer off this track of likely starting with a 25 basis point hike next week is if something happened in the financial system, in the funding markets, something maybe, you know, tied to uh, sanctions on, uh, on Russia and the sort of feeder into the financial system that has not um, come into the, the, the picture uh, so far. But that to me would be the only thing that would cause the Fed to step back. Just, just weakness in the market or volatility in a vacuum, I don't think takes the Fed off track, especially given that the inflation problem existed well before Ukraine's invasion of, uh, I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Are people starting to talk about systemic risk? Um, people are starting to wonder whether there are sort of whales, so to speak, that have yet to come to the surface. Could there be another long-term capital management? There is a lot of lookbacks to the 1997-1998 situation, which, which started in 97 with the devaluation of the Thai bot, ultimately led to problems in the rest of emerging markets and the Russia debt default, uh, which of course led to the, um, the, the, the demise of long-term capital man management and the necessity of a, of a bailout. On the surface, um, I, we can say that there's um, a lot of differences between then and now, not least just being in general, the leverage in the financial system, um, the lessons learned from the financial crisis era of, of you know, late 07 to, to mid 09. So I think the tentacles of, of leverage don't appear to be as systemic or, or troublesome, but we have no idea um, uh, you know, whether or not there are whales that could come to the surface here, whether there's um, leverage in, in funds tied into Russian debt, um, uh, some of just the concerns about the weaponization of the financial system, which I, I think makes a lot of sense in terms of sanctions, but we don't yet, yet know the, the ripple effects. So yes, people are starting to talk about it, but so far we're not seeing indications like a complete blowout in, in credit spreads or other segments of the market that might give you a bit of a, of a warning sign, but we certainly need to be on guard, especially if things get worse. Well, I'm only modestly relieved to hear all this, but I want to bring Ben into the conversation. We're going to get back to where you think people should be investing now, but I'd like to bring Ben in and talk about some of the big news of the week. We've got Apple launching some new products kind of off season. They usually launch in September, but Ben, tell us what's coming and whether it will matter to Apple's bottom line. Uh, well, it's going to be uh, a new SE smartphone. So these are their, their low end phones. Um, and, you know, it's it matters in the sense that, you know, it's a chance for Apple to uh, pick up users who um, and, and bring them into their ecosystem who might not otherwise uh, want to spend the uh, the uh, extreme amounts uh, that it, it takes to buy a uh, um, one of their higher end phones. Um, I think more interesting, though, is that it's it really is a chance to, to look at, at Apple and how it's how it's doing. And it's really holding up better than the market. Um and that, in in some ways, is both a, a good thing and a bad thing. I, I don't think the the event itself uh, is going to be a trigger of anything. 
but you know it's it's one of those uh, moments where if uh, Apple were to to start falling, that could actually hurt the market quite a bit. Today, it's helping. It's only down 0.4 percent, um, even though the uh, the stock market is down. Um, I think the S and P is down two, the Nasdaq's down two, the Dow's down 1.8 percent, and Apple's down only uh, 0.4, 0.5. Um, and, and so uh, Apple's actually helping in some ways. Uh, it's, it's a form of balance for the market. If that were to end, um, it would be a, a problem. Um, we had one analyst from Wedbush who was saying that, uh, you know, he thinks that in this kind of environment that we're in, um, that uh, Apple is a, a safety tech name to own during a market, during this market storm. Um, and so far, that's been the case. Um, I just worry about what happens when that stops or if that stops. If it stops. Absolutely. You know, before we go on to the rest of the news, I wanted to ask you about the systemic risks issue. You spend a lot of time talking to a lot of traders and market folks. What are you hearing? Um, it, it very much the same as uh, Lizanne, is that uh, there are concerns um, out there about it. But as of yet, there aren't any signs that it exists. I think the um, those concerns are showing up in bank stocks, which have gotten hit pretty hard. But if you look at things, uh, I mean, I, I just look at credit markets um, and how, uh, you know, high yield is getting hit, but it's not getting hit as much as you would suspect, given uh, how much the VIX is uh, shot up. And um, and so I think for now, um, it, it's something that uh, people are really wary of and are watching. Um, but there, there just aren't signs that uh, it that that they're actually there yet. Um, for whatever reason, the market seems to be handling this pretty well. It's got to be handling something well because it's not been a very good stretch here. But that's good to know. <laughs> so let's go on to the rest of the week. We've got a batch of annual meetings and investor days coming up. Disney holds its annual meeting on Wednesday. Any big reveals expected there? I don't think there are any big reveals. Um, I, I think there's there, there's hope, though. Um, I mean, Disney has been in such a, a tough spot. It was uh, for a while there. It was, oh, you know, the, the parks were closed and it was seen as a uh, covid reopening play. And then it managed to convince people that it was a streaming play. Um, and then both streaming, um, you know, had that big burst and then, you know, the content hasn't been there. The signups haven't been there. And so the stock was punished for that. We had COVID refusing to go away. And so the parks were getting hit. And those are the two really biggest businesses um, that the stock at least depends on. Um, and that really hurts. And so you're coming to this period, though, where both of those might start to um, start to reverse where you're going to get the parks are reopening. They've been making more money on the parks just by finding ways to charge people more for things. And um, you're also going to get a lot of new content coming uh, over the over 2022. And so if both of these things play out well. You could actually see Disney, which has gotten beaten up pretty horribly, um, you know, bounce back. I think it's down around 40 percent over the last 12 months. And so this is a um, it could be. Um, a chance for it to, uh, to to bounce back if they're able to convince investors that, yes, the parks are going to reopen. The streaming is going to continue growing. They have a lot of growth engines there if they can all work. Yeah. And a lot of pain when they don't. That's for sure. So before we leave the events of the week, AT&T has an investor day on Friday. The company has been through a lot of changes. It's going to be going through more. How does Wall Street regard the stock these days and what might we hear on Friday when the company speaks? You know, there, there's still a lot of, um, I, I guess, just uh, maybe some cynicism um, 
to, to the turnaround plan um, at at and You know, it still needs to complete its uh, spinoff of uh, Time Warner and, and really focus again on um, the uh, on the legacy businesses of, you know, being a communications company. Um, that being said, the stock has actually done, um, I would say, decently uh, this year, um, at least relative to the uh, the rest of the market. I think it was down about 3% um at friday's close um and uh it's another one that's just gotten beaten up horribly and it provides a little bit of safety in this kind of market that we're in um and it has a a very you know it's it's pretty huge dividend at this point it's going to get smaller um once the uh the spinoff is done um but it's still going to be very large um and so it's a stock that if it can sort of get past the spinoff and really refocus that business it's priced for a lot of bad news so perhaps it's another one of these things that uh with just a, a little bit of the right messaging could perhaps start to do better fair enough as as lizanne said we shouldn't speak about moments of buying opportunities but that's certainly one to watch lizanne at the moment at&t yields about 8.7 percent which is enormous on an absolute and a relative basis i don't want to talk about at&t with you but i do want to ask you how you think investors ought to be regarding dividend income these days is it a big part of your investment thesis well, view? one of our, our one of our broad theses, um, really for quite a few months now, I would say to the middle part of last year, is for individual investors that take a stock picking approach. They're not just investing at a, at a passive level. That factor based investing makes a lot of sense right now. That's where leadership has been much more consistent. And among the leadership factors um, that have been working really uh, across the spectrum of, of sectors um, is dividend yield. And, and that's in conjunction with other factors like free cash flow uh, yield, earnings yield. In fact, even in growthier sectors like you know, tech, um, fact, those value type factors um, have been outperforming. So uh, it's one of the reasons why when I talk about growth and value, I talk about the characteristics of growth and value, not necessarily the you know, predetermined indexes of, of growth and value. I do think one thing investors have to be mindful of with regard to dividend yield is that sometimes a very, very high dividend yield is indicative of risk in the company itself, which of course means potential risk at the stock price level. Uh, so, so anyone screening for dividend yield should also screen for um, company fundamentals as well, uh, you know, a, a plug for Schwab equity ratings, which is not my area uh, of Schwab, but we, you know, we have a quantitative ranking um, tool um, uh, for over 3,000 stocks. You can screen for dividend yield, but you can also see whether it's an A or B rated stock or a D or an F rated stock. And I think applying that overlay of fundamentals valuation um, on top of just say, you know, screening for dividend yield and then um, sorting in inverse order and just saying, okay, I'm going to buy the, the top, the top three names. You do risk that capital depreciation component. I think that's an extremely important point. As Ben said, AT&T's dividend yield is going to shrink when the company spins off Warner Media, but you raise a very good point. It's not just the size of the yield. It's the quality of the company. So I want to move on for a moment to this week's earnings. It's a very light week for corporate earnings news, but we are going to hear from Campbell's Soup. 
Ben, walk us through the numbers there. What What is the company likely to report? Um, well, they're expected to report a profit of 68 cents a share. That would be down from uh, 84 cents a year ago. Um, what's interesting about it to me is that uh, the stock has actually been doing uh, pretty well, um, despite headwinds that uh, um, many analysts are seeing. Um, Campbell appears to be uh, losing market share, um, according to Deutsche Bank, um, to their analysts there. Um, it's having some margin pressures uh, because of uh, um, supply chain issues, but also just because all their input costs are going up. Um, and um, and so they, they're expecting actually margins to, to decline. Um, the stock, though, has actually been going up this year. It's up. Uh, it was up 4.8 percent uh, as of um, Friday's close. It's down a little bit today, down 0.7. And I think that's really just because it is a uh, consumer staple. And in this market, uh, consumer staples are really one of the. Uh, places when you're um, seeing the market get uh, knocked around the way it is that uh, consumer staples are one place that uh, um, you typically want to be as defensive. People are going to keep spending on food. Uh, they're going to keep spending on the other kinds of staples. And so that makes the uh, the, the sector um, uh, one where you, where uh, it's going to attract flows, uh, even if the stocks themselves might be facing some pressures. And so it'll be interesting to see how the market handles uh, this dichotomy when uh, Campbell's releases on Wednesday. Will it uh, be one where are we going to see these pricing pressures coming through? How are they being able to handle that? And will the uh, and, and will investors be willing to kind of look through some of those issues for the for the steadiness that comes with owning a staple stock? That's that's a fair point as well. So you mentioned staples a couple of times there, which seems a good time to segue into sectors and what Luzanne might favor. Thomas asks a question. I'm flipping now to our listener questions. Given volatility in the markets. What sectors should investors look to for steady and consistent returns? Do you have some thoughts there, Lizanne, about what looks good and what looks a little? Yeah, I think if, let me let me answer it in two ways. I, I'll, I'll get to what our current sector recommendations are, but let me expand on what I touched on earlier, um, which is I think factor based investing makes more sense in this highly volatile period of time than trying to guess what sector is going to be the outperformer over the next week or month or, or even quarter. The sector volatility has been so dramatic in the past year. We know energy has been by far the, the top performing sector in the past year, but a lot of people don't realize that energy has been the uh, best performing sector in fewer months, if you rank by month, than it's been the worst performing sector. So you see a lot of bouncing up and down, um, maybe less extreme with some of the other sectors, but trying to get ahead of that from a trading perspective, I think is, uh, is really difficult. That said, when we think about the factors that we believe will continue to display our performance, and I touched on, on many of them, those on the yield-oriented side, dividend yield, free cash flow yield, earnings yield, but also positive earnings revisions. We're in a very negative earnings revisions environment, two and a half times uh, the number of negative revisions relative to positive revisions, um, uh, strong balance sheets, relatively low debt. Um, the two sectors that check a lot of those boxes are healthcare and financials. So that's where we have outperform ratings. That by no means means we think they're going to be these steady performers in this period of heightened volatility. They'll probably jump all over the place like every other yeah. sector. We just think that they check most of those 
boxes. And then on the underperform end of the spectrum is materials and industrials. And that's just a more of a shorter term view based on the weakness and growth that we're seeing and the, the real kind of heavy cyclicals we think could um, uh, have a period of underperformance if this you know, expectation for really slow growth in the case again of GDP now down to zero or recession risk coming to the fore more that those uh, you know, heavy cyclical areas would suffer. But again, that, that you, know, you, could, you could see them right at the top of the list if you continue to see commodity surges. I think the sector call short term, especially if you're trading oriented is really, really tricky in this environment. Where would you put staples, which we talked about in the context of Campbell? Yeah, we have that as, uh, so our ratings are outperform, underperform, and market perform. So the the seven other sectors, aside from the four that I mentioned, the two outperforms and two underperforms are in that market perform, or maybe a better uh, term would be a neutral category, and that's where staples sits. And tell me a bit more about factors. What are some other factors that you expect to do well? And, and what are some that you think might do poorly? Um, I think low volatility is probably going to do well. Um, factors, um, when you get to extreme volatility in the market or an extreme shift in uh, the, the backdrop, um, you, you tend to see when you, have a, when you have a dearth of something or a wealth of something, you often see the opposite come into favor. So in an environment of, of, you know, rampant volatility across asset classes, it sort of shines a spotlight on stocks that have low volatility. When you're in a negative earnings revisions environment where you've got, you know, the, the, the overall ratio well into negative territory, stocks that have rising positive earnings revisions tend to have a light uh, shown on them. Um, and in fact, a factor like earnings revision is, is one of those uh, nice hybrid factors in the sense that it's, it's sort of a growth factor. You know, you've got rising expectations for earnings growth, but along with that means that the forward PE on the stock is coming down because the forward earnings are going up. So hybrid in the sense that it gives you that value kicker as well. As I mentioned, strong balance sheet, um, low debt to equity, and I, I already touched on, on the, the yield characteristics. So I, I really think really what the collection encompasses is quality. I, I think high quality is where you want to be. I think the, the so-called low quality trade that was extremely popular a year ago um, the, you know, the, the, the meme stocks and the weak balance sheet companies, the heavily shorted stocks, non-profitable tech, the bankruptcy companies, SPACs, I'd, dare I say, I'd put crypto into the, the list. Um, I, I just think the, the low quality uh, trade that was driven by, you know, heightened sort of speculative froth, I think that's largely in the rearview mirror and you want to focus on quality. We had a question from G. It's a kind of negative question. Is 2022 not the year for tech stocks? It depends on what tech stocks you're talking right. about. I think what we've seen this year is that we can no longer look at the tech sector or even 
the components of it, like the big five, as we were calling it for, for a while, especially during the pen, worst of the pandemic era. Now it's more the, the super seven because Facebook and Tesla have sort of bounced back and forth in the, in the, in the, into the fifth position of the big five. And then you've got Nvidia up there close. Now, a lot of people look at the, the, the super seven as I've been calling them. And I, I think what we're learning is that you can't look at even subsets of a subset like tech with a monolithic lens. And you've seen much more dispersion in terms of how even within that small group of only seven stocks are, are performing. So I, I don't think it's a yes tech, no tech uh, call. I, I think that that's, that's akin to get in, get out. I think, as I mentioned, in the last four months, and the reason why I use four months is it ties back to the point at which the Fed started tapering the balance sheet. That was sort of the inflection point in terms of tighter monetary policy, tightening financial conditions, which is often an inflection point in market behavior. And that is when value lowercase v, value factors started to outperform. And, you know, the, the top performing value factors within tech um, I mean, the top performing factors within tech are value-oriented uh, factors, including earnings yield and free cash flow yield. So you can look for value even within tech. You don't have to look at it through a monolithic lens and, and make a yes or no out or in um, kind of call. And I would apply that to all sectors, not just tech. I think that's a good point for all of them as well. So I have a question for Ben, then we'll talk quickly about the economy and call it a day. Michael asks, Ben, will airline stocks benefit from recoveries? Will the airline stocks benefits from recoveries in travel be undermined by the rising price of fuel? Any thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they will, unfortunately. It's, uh, um, you know, the sector's been waiting so long for just uh know people to start flying again for uh covid to to go away um and now that moment uh you know maybe COVID is not completely going away but it seems like people are ready to move past covid um that moment could be here and and you have oil shooting up as, as much as it has and um airlines do need to, they need, they're going to need to adjust and it's going to be tough for them um i was speaking to one airline analyst who was just saying that you know they have their um, the, the flights that are are out there, and it takes uh, their schedules, and it takes time to to dial them back to remove the the routes that are not going to be profitable um, with uh, oil at these prices. And so, I think it just becomes another uh, another headwind for them, um, and it's just a headwind after for headwind. Um, and I, I guess if there is a good news on it, is that they've gotten hit so hard. I think American Airlines is down close to, to 50% from uh, its peak uh, last year. Um, and so a lot of this bad news is uh, getting priced in. Um, but it is, I think, taking a while for them. It's going it to take longer for them to get that kind of recovery that everyone's been waiting for. I feel like humanity and the airlines both need a break. Yes, <laughs> very <laughs> much so. They can't catch one. So let's close with a look at the economy. Last week, we had a very good jobs report. This week, we're going to get the latest reading on the consumer price index on Thursday. So far, inflation has been running at a 40-year high. Ben, give us your expectation, then we'll hear from Lizanne. 
Um, and inflation isn't going to let up yet. Um, it's uh, expected to keep uh, going. I think it's supposed to rise 0.8% on a month over month basis. 7.9% uh, um, is, I think, the consensus on a year over year. I mean, these are astronomical numbers that the likes of which that uh, um, I would suspect a lot of people just don't even remember anymore. Um, and uh, and so it's going to be high. I mean, the, the only thing that uh, um, I, I think that we know that they're coming. Um, so it's, it's not going to be a surprise, but we'll be looking to see, is there an upside beat because of what's happening to oil? Although I think most of that ends up coming through in uh, next month's uh, uh, CPI. And it's hard for the Fed to, I know the, the Fed likes to watch uh, the core numbers uh, on the PCE, but it's hard to make an argument that, uh, you know, higher oil prices aren't uh, impacting uh, the consumer. Um, you know, both in, in terms of like heating their homes, driving their cars, et cetera. My goodness, we got our heating bill. I almost fainted. Lizanne, what's your <laughs> view on inflation? Where do you see the numbers going? Um, well, I think uh, as, you know, assuming the, the Russia-Ukraine situation persists and we don't get any kind of retreat in oil prices, there's no question headline measures of inflation will uh, show that. I think that there's a little bit less risk of core measures, at least in the U.S., um, sort of spiraling up alongside what might be persistently high headline inflation. We are um, at the we, we're going we're to start to get the benefit of base effects, which is what caused inflation to spike initially last year when the comp was to the year prior when we were in lockdown mode. Now we'll start to have the year-over-year comps go up against that period of time where we had those uh, spikes. But again, that's likely to be at the at the core level, I think the rub is not just the the impact of inflation on, I mean, of uh, oil prices and other energy prices on headline inflation, but also the feeders into uh, food inflation. I think the biggest impact that that is already having and will continue to have is um, is not so much that it'll feed down into core measures of inflation but it represents inevitable, in my opinion, demand destruction. I, I think what we're experiencing right now, maybe it's semantics of, of what label you apply to it, but you know the stagflation term is being used to describe the environment. And if your definition is simply weaker growth and high inflation, yes, you know the shoe fits. But the actual definition that was born out of the 1970s of stagflation was also inclusive of a high and rising unemployment rate. Um, clearly, we don't check that box this time, not to mention much higher productivity and much different demographic profile. I think the better descriptor of what we're experiencing right now is countercyclical inflation or um, maybe also considered cost push inflation, where inflation itself is putting downward pressure on demand and downward pressure on growth. And I don't think that force uh, changes anytime soon unless we get a miraculous end of this conflict in uh, in Russia and Ukraine. Not quite what we expected from the end of COVID, but Correct. there we have it. We will leave it there. I want to thank you for joining us today and congrats again on being named one of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Thank you. And thank you for your comments. Ben, thank you as well for your thank insights you. today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in and thanks for your great questions. Do join us again tomorrow. Reshma Padia, Barron's Associate Editor, will be speaking with veteran value investor Sarah Ketterer, Chief Executive Officer of Causeway Capital Management, about the opportunities in foreign stocks and career advice for young investors. 
Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.